four three two one let's go it's the pick four podcast i'm your host mark youngblood as always uh special guest this week my longtime friend crystal cornell hey guys appreciate you making time for me super excited to be here this you picked a good one for me i hope um it'll make for good uh debate maybe yeah i think it will uh the topic we picked this week is our top four scary movies so not necessarily the best scary movies but our favorite scary movies easy enough yeah now who goes first you just whoop it out there give us your number four okay number four so this one is actually pretty well known i picked silence of the lambs oh good one yeah yeah um so i was about like five no six years old about six years old when this movie came out uh always been a fan of the psych horror um subgenre of horror it's i think it provides a lot of a lot of thinking on the audience's part um it forces you to question why what are people's motives? Why do they do things the way that they do them? Yeah. Um, so I've always been a big fan. Of course, I think they kind of did really well with the casting too. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong. I, now we're looking at it like from hindsight, but how can you go wrong with Anthony Hopkins as super uh, well-educated, ultra genius serial killer? And super well cultured. Yeah. I mean, you can't. It, is he the best bad guy ever? I don't know if I want to say the best bad guy. Definitely the most cultured, most cultured villain. Um, very elegant. And, and this is going to make me sound completely psychotic in what I'm about to say, but a very elegant style of killing. It, Please I don't mean, judge. It's not untrue. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't judge, but yeah, it's very pretty, I guess, which probably it sounds is. even and worse. It's funny you say that because I think the the TV show encapsulates that. Yes, it it's, does. It's beautiful to look at whether you're involved in the storyline or not. The aesthetics are very pleasing. And I think just uh, who Hannibal is as a person um, not just because he's a doctor and you know he's very well um, very well read and he's cultured he's traveled all over the place but he kind of carries that on to the people that he meets like he expects people in his company to have some yeah. sort of some sort of eloquence and grace about them he doesn't uh, mess around with the less than worthy no he doesn't doesn't like to waste his time i sort of love that about him i kind of understand the not wanting time wasted part um seems like i wrote something it's been a while but uh about it's sort of a love affair as much as he's capable of love of a love affair between he and first will graham Mm -hmm. before you ever get to clarice um, and I think that 
in his mind, like there's an element of worthiness whether or not he engages. No, completely agree there. Um, I've always thought like in uh, those relationships, uh, they're very intimate and um, especially the ones that are close to him, like with Will Graham Mm -hmm. or uh, with Clarice. um, It almost kind of comes off like, and I don't know, again, that's just me kind of tinkering around and what is this person thinking? Uh, maybe he thinks that's the only way he knows how to love. Yeah. Is messed up as it is. No, I get it. But I'm a fellow serial killer enthusiast, so. Yeah, like, it, people who tend to fangirl over serial killers are like, <laughs> oh, that make, it makes total sense. To normal yeah, people, you, it you doesn't either, make sense. Yeah, you either understand it or you don't. Um... You said, how old were you when you first saw it? It's about six years old. So it was then 91. Man, you started early. Oh, yeah. Was it with parental consent or did you do it sneakily? No, um, not with parental consent. Um, My grandmother, my mom's mom, has been a fan of the genre for a long time. Uh, So in spending time with her... I watched them. She let me watch them. I probably started at about the tender age of four. <laughs> and I've never looked back. Yeah, and here you are today, the uh, epitome of being well-adjusted, right? Very well-adjusted. <laughs> I also think the line that I've, uh, of work that I'm in also makes me well-adjusted to these kinds of storylines because I can sit there and say, oh, I know someone in real life who is just like that. Yeah. Tell us what line of work you're in. So I work in long-term healthcare services with the IDD community. So I've done this on and off for about 16 years um, working with people with mental illness, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so the stigma around mental health which is something that really needs to be worked on but i think there's just a a big misconception that um all people who are some kind of crazy are the same everyone's crazy yeah i'm glad you said that um i got to a point several years ago where I, i sort of thought to myself and i've said it out loud to other people but like why does a, a particular group of people get to decide or label uh, behavior as crazy. Like something you believe in your soul, if you firmly believe it and there's no mental illness aspect to it, why is that held in disregard? So if in your soul, like Hannibal wants to believe that what he's doing is just and fair and there's not an element of uh, uh, of mental illness. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Well, uh, mental well, like he's in his right mind. Of course. It's not like he's having some sort of disassociative episode. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's completely in control 100% it's exactly of the what time. he wants to do, yeah. So why does society get to say, well... That, that's something you, ha- you that we can't allow that, but we can allow X, Y, and Z. 
you know, that's something that I've pondered for the longest time. Um, and again, what I'm about to say is going to make me sound completely crazy, but um, people who aren't in a normal state of mind all the time tend to make a lot of sense in a lot of different areas. Which again, you know, if you're not exposed to people like that all the time, and that way of thinking, like, it makes absolutely zero sense. Um, and you're right, you know, really who gets to decide and make the rules, like, you know, as humans, we're, our way of thinking, our behaviors, like, they're, they're not black and white, there's a lot of gray area. Well, and it's ever evolving too. Yeah, like it, it's super complex, and the rules are always changing. Yep. Like if you follow the fields of um, of psychology, it's like everything's changing all the it's time. It's all organic. There, are, there are no hard edges. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, I guess going through life trying to be a good person, trying to have some sense of right and wrong, and for some people. Their moral compasses just point in a different well, direction. It, yeah, in my head, I'm thinking, man, we're taking this like 800 degrees in <laughs> not the scary movie direction, but uh, it's uh, like de- defining good but and evil. But that all ties in the, with the same that, that all ties in with the central characters of the movie. I mean, essentially, the person or the two people who are essentially the bad guy, it all revolves around it all revolves around their way of thinking, like what is right, what is wrong. Yeah. And I can do this because I can. Uh, Anthony Hopkins won an Academy Award for this role, correct? He did. The whole movie won seven total Oscars, so he got Best Actor for this role. And isn't his on-screen time something rather minimal? Mm-hmm. Like 15-ish minutes, maybe? I was going to say, like yeah, it, it's less than 20 minutes, I think, total. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, as a... A Hannibal Lecter nerd, uh, I super hope that there's a, is it James Harrison? That's not right. What's his name that wrote the books? Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris. I hope that he has in, in a stash somewhere a a pre-Red Dragon story. Yes. Uh, <laughs> much like the TV show that documents uh the, the chase for the unknown Chesapeake Ripper mm-hmm. turns out to be Hannibal, of course, but I hope, and maybe they released, release it posthumously once, once he actually passes that, that he has a story of Dr. Lecter and, and Will Graham stashed away somewhere. Kind of like how their relationship started off yeah. with just the the bits and pieces you get from yeah, because Red Dragon from that book. he's already in jail, um, and you don't really the time at which they met is is super minimal. Yeah, like there's there's not a lot of backstory to it. You just know that he existed, and this is why he ended up in jail. Yeah. Okay, we could talk about him. The like he could be his own episode, probably. He could between be between the two of us. He could be. Okay, I'm going to give you my number four. Uh, This is going to be one of the ones that either people are like, yeah, that's awesome, or no, you're an (laughs) idiot. Uh, It's Blair Witch Project. Okay. Now, this came out in 99, written and directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Uh, 
they were film students at Central Florida, had the idea to shoot this movie, uh, published some casting calls, got the green light to, to get it done. Their budget was $60,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> and if you're familiar with the movie, I hope you're, I'm going to talk about it like everybody's familiar with it, considering it's yeah, like no, 20 I've seen plus it. years old. I think that was the one that started the uh, the lost film footage in yes. the genre. Yeah. Shot for $60,000. There was some uh, post-production cost that went into that that bumped the budget up to about six hundred grand, But it made... Uh, $248 million worldwide in the box office. So it was a pretty good return on an investment there. I'm honestly there. surprised by that number. It was huge. Do you remember how popular this movie was? I do. And and I remember, and I'm not going to judge because it was your pick, but I, I remember just not liking it that well, much. Well, that, that's it. You, I think you I was either young when I watched it, though. Maybe I need to rewatch it again as an adult. Really and see like if I can... it or you really don't. I need to see maybe if I can gain another perspective watching it with a different mindset. Um, th- this will be a popular theme in my list is I think I'm most bothered by horror movies where you don't have a real identifiable visual bad guy or entity or however you want to label it. Like you don't, you don't ever lay eyes on the Blair Witch. Right. Uh, it's it's assumed that she's out there, um, and you don't even really like confirm her existence until the last ten seconds of the movie. Maybe that was on purpose, though. Well, uh, yeah, because they shot a couple of different endings, and they went with the one where you don't actually get a visual. There's another part in the movie, uh, in the middle, when the the tent's getting shaken at night yeah. and they get up and run out. Yeah. The, their plan was to, as they're running through the forest out, once they get out of the tent, was to cut away uh, one camera shot and actually have uh, one is like one of the, either one of the directors themselves or another production of one of the crew members uh, dressed up kind of off in the distance so that you do at least get a visual of it. But in the in the sort of ensuing chaos that I'm going to talk about, how this movie got made, uh, like you kind of just well, you they see, you see they it enough to make to you turn wonder to get the shot. Like they were just focused on running through the forest in the dark. Oops. <laughs> rather than running through the forest in the dark and turn and get a, a peek of what they had scheduled to get a peek of. So there is no vision. I think that's what bothered me most. In addition to the ending where it you know it loops all the way back to the beginning of the movie where the one of the townspeople is given his account of how, how the myth works. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, there is no script for the movie. They wrote a, a 35 page outline of how they wanted the myth to come across. And then sort of an outline of what to talk about during the course of the, the three main characters filming each, each other, which they did. Um, they shot it in eight days out in the forests in Maryland in two different state parks. They had walkie-talkies uh, that they could communicate with the crew so that they could coordinate their destination for the day 
you have to get from where you're at to the next point. And at the next point, there will be a crate that has fresh batteries for the video camera, uh, new film cans for the 16 millimeter camera, and some food. And they would take those out of the crate and put the, the shot footage back in the crate. And then at some point, they would come pick the crate up and just continue the story. Uh, what the, <laughs> the directors did, though, is each food drop, they cut back the amount of food they were putting in the box to sort of increase the tension between the three main characters. Uh, the, the main characters were Heather Donahue, Michael Williams, and, and Joshua Leonard. Those are their actual names as well as their names in the movie. The uh, Since they shot it that way, where they just sort of gave them the high points of, of what to hit and sort of how to react to each other, uh, all of the reactions, particularly the, the tent shaking scene, those are real because they didn't know that was coming. Oh, those are the, <laughs> yeah, they, those are the best. They, they were sleeping outside like in that. the tent and suddenly they get waking up with the sides of their tent just rattling and they have no idea what for. I mean, it was brilliantly done. I remember sitting there watching it and that that particular scene was not quite like a jump scare, but enough to kind of just rattle Make you, you a uneasy. little bit. Yeah. Just makes you uncomfortable. And if you've ever been outside in the dark. Yes. <laughs> you can't, like, there is no ambient light unless the moon is out. Uh, you can't see eight feet in front of you if you're in a new moon phase and it's dark outside. Oh, yeah. You got nothing. So all you're hearing are, are the sticks and the rocks, and which was all orchestrated uh, by the directors and the crew. Uh, the reactions you're getting from the actors are genuine the the discomfort they they had with each other at points was genuine they got lost three different times <laughs> shouldn't laugh at that <laughs> yeah the night that it uh rains in the movie their tent leaked and they got soaked cool. so they did actually take a break take everybody into town let them get cleaned up and warmed up and fed and then went back out and finished with a, a new waterproof tent um let's see i mentioned the walkie-talkies the okay the the beginning you know all except the last scene where the house is yeah uh all that prior footage in the woods was shot in one state park the house is in another state park okay so it's 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 its own location uh it's called the griggs house and it was scheduled to be demolished prior to the release of the movie. Now, the release of the movie happens. Everybody finds out where this location is. There's like a the early days of crowdsourcing. They raise enough funds to sort of save it, but in saving it, they sort of killed it because it became such a hot spot for fans of the movie and, and fans of you know scary stuff in general to march out in the woods and go find the house. So what they did, the next year, uh, they went ahead and demolished it in the dark without, tell <laughs> without telling oh, anybody. <laughs> it caused a little uproar. It wasn't super huge, though. A little that they had to do it in secret? I think yeah. it was more than a little. Uh, and one more note on this I made. Uh, 
Heather Donahue's mom received sympathy cards uh, because lots of people didn't realize that this was not genuine lost footage. They really thought that this lady's daughter had <laughs> disappeared in the forest and gotten murdered by the Blair Witch. Wow. Yeah. I actually didn't. <laughs> well, for I mean, they do a really good job of selling it because it's not people you've ever seen or heard of. That's true. The way they marketed it. Uh, but how would you feel as the parent, They put though? lost. Well, yeah. Like, they what? They put <laughs> uh, lost posters up all over the town. Jeez. <laughs> saying these people were missing. So uh, they really sold it as a real event. And I think that's what drew me to it to start with, because you weren't entirely, you know, maybe it's real, maybe it's a, just a movie. I don't, I don't know. Let's watch it and see. I can see that. But that that was one of my first loves of of scary movie was was this particular film. Okay. Give me your number two. My number two. Oh, um, Final Destination. So we're falling into the uh, uh, the supernatural yeah. horror category. Um, so this came out in, I believe, the year 2000. So still pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, anyone who's seen the movies, it. I think I like it because there's uh, there's a sense of realism. The things that happen, I mean, those things can happen to you. Sure. Um, so while I was doing my notes, I, I did a, you know, came across this, some interesting research. You know, they actually, um, the research that they did uh, for the movie, I mean, they were based off of like real freak accidents that happened somewhere between the span of like 1977 and 2013. Um, Devin Sawa's character, Alex, uh, that actually happened to someone. Oh, wow. Yeah, had a had a vision or a premonition, whatever you want to call it, got off a plane and that plane happened to crash after he got off of it. Weird stuff. Really, really weird stuff. Um, One that I read and uh, they, uh, they took like bits and pieces from some of these freak accidents and they incorporated them into the movie. Um, you know, like where the plane explodes and, you know, people start getting sucked out and pieces of the plane, like, just start getting ripped apart. Um, that actually happened. I want to say that was 2013. Uh, an Asian airline. I don't remember the name. Flying into San Francisco International. Oh, wow. Yeah, the plane came apart. Three people got sucked out of that plane. Two of them died on impact. One, the one person who survived... And was going to walk away. Gets hit by a car. <laughs> gets hit by a car that's rushing, like, to get away from all the chaos that's going on. Like, that is just, that's just a shitty way to go. Yeah, your name is already Survive a plane crash, day. get hit by a car. Yeah. Like, it's not fair. Um, the general sense with these movies that I think drew me to them and why I watch them is it makes me very uncomfortable. And I think it makes me uncomfortable because it's, again, these are things that can really happen to you. Um, You aren't in control of your own fate. Yes. And as you know, me, an anxious person, loss of control, like, really, really makes me uncomfortable. Like, I won't even drive behind a flatbed semi 
with for fear of your head getting chopped off <laughs> yes yes it's what the second movie the logs on the back of the truck and one of them falls off and just the yeah. whole thing goes to shit i won't even drive behind someone carrying it? stuff on their semi I, I can't it just it it unsettles me that much that i will just zip past them like nope i don't want to die today yeah i don't want to do it um Even though it's a movie, like, I guess it just, it feels real because there's um, a lot of tension that comes um, between the surviving characters, you know, and of course, as one of them kind of get picked off one by one, like that tension heightens and... Can see it coming. Yeah, not even just see it coming, though, but you're so, everyone is so quick to be too safe. You know, that they drive themselves mad in the process. Mm -hmm. Like you, they kind of forget to live because they're, they're wondering whether or not they're going to die five minutes later. Yeah. Yeah, Just overall creepiness. They're all creepy. Every single one of them. I think there's at least two or three kill scenes where I'm just like, ugh. I didn't realize the first one was that old. Yep. The first one is that old. 20 years old now. Almost. Almost. Yeah, that kind of makes me feel old. <laughs> a little bit. It's a popular theme. Yeah. Um, I think one, uh, one other scene out of uh, that series of movies, um, car wash. Just driving your car <laughs> through the car wash and your moonroof gets stuck and yeah. your car starts to fly. Like, that just... Oh, it gives me the creepies. Like, I don't even like thinking about it. Like, it just gives me the creepies. Like, drowning is like a horrible way to go. Would you rather drown or be set on fire? Neither. Would you rather? That's what we're playing right now. No, I don't want to would you rather because both of them suck. (laughs) Why do I have to pick? I I, I don't want to pick. Can I just... Can can we pass? (laughs) Yeah, we'll pass. Come back to me. Skip that question. (laughs) All right. My number three, again, not a, like a real super identifiable bad guy, but it's get out. Uh, for some of the same reason, like just the mental anguish of somebody else being in your head and you maybe not... Uh, having control of your actions. Um, really well received, written and directed by Jordan Peele. Uh, the racial tensions and class differences uh, that are addressed in the movie are, I think, pretty clever um, and done in a, a s- not quite so subtle way, but not like in your face. Um, well, horror movies have always been political in one sense one, one, or another. Yeah, one way or another. Yeah, yeah, they've always been that way. Um, I wrote down a couple of things about, you know, Get Out might have a couple of three different meanings in the movie. It could mean, you know, work on getting out of the house. It could mean get out of the relationship. It could mean get out of the town. It could mean get out of my head. I think for me, it was get out of your head. Yeah. Uh, Going to the sunken place, like, 
you, you have no say. Like you just sink into the floor and you're gone. And, and that's a couple of things I read and that I think I even wrote down that Jordan Peele meant for the sunken place to sort of represent the marginalization uh, of people who don't have a say. So black folks, um, you know, if you're if you're in the sunken place, it doesn't matter how, how loud you scream. Nobody hears you. And I think that speaks volumes really in our does. current political climate. Very much so. Uh, the uh, Redbone by Childish Gambino is included in this movie early on. If you're familiar with the lyrics, uh, I think it it's almost like it was written for the movie. Uh, talk about keeping your eyes open. Stay woke. Don't let them catch you. Yeah. I'm just super uneasy with the idea of somebody else being in my head. And I think that's part of my fascination with uh, psychology in general is I want to reverse that role. <laughs> for that his, makes sense. Yeah, for his I think people who were generally in their head that way all the time yeah are drawn they're drawn to things like that because i mean in a sense it's like how can, do i keep this from happening to me yeah and i can see like the 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 uncomfortableness that idea creates on the receiving end like well why wouldn't i just go ahead and turn that around to start with and be the the perpetrator we're on more enemies it's hard to get out of your head accurate all right, give me your number two. Okay, my number two. Um, so, I think you'll like this one. Um, pretty well known. I, David, just thinking about the what I'm about to say, what the name is, it just it makes me laugh. Um, so I'm a big fan of like campy horror too. I picked Young Frankenstein <laughs> for my number two. <laughs> I absolutely I love, love this movie. Um, and I don't think, I, I mean, I watched this as a kid. Um, and I don't think I really learned to appreciate it until I was an adult and, you know, had lived some life. I'm like, this is absolutely hilarious. It's genius. It is great. So what I thought was super interesting, of course, you know, directed by Mel Brooks. And, you know, he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's about everything that he's done. Um, it was also co-directed by Gene Wilder. Um he came up with the uh, with the idea for the story. He thought that it would be absolutely hilarious to follow the the nephew of um, Mary Shelley's character, Victor Frankenstein, and just make him hate his family legacy and just not want to do it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's make a movie out of that. It's so brilliant. Um, you know that was uh, that was done in the seventies. But I like that they gave it like the like the old throwback, like to the 1930s, like classic horror. Well, the movies. set is original Frankenstein set. Yeah, and they shot it in black and white instead of color. Yep. And I liked I liked the casting fix. I think they did fantastic casting Peter Boyle as the monster. <laughs> I I can't. All these lines are running through my head. I want to just start spitting them out. It's amazing. Uh, you're right. The 
who else would you cast? Like, I really can't think of anyone else. And then uh, Gene Wilder as uh, Frederick Frankenstein, not Frankenstein. Yeah. I love how he spends the entire movie correcting people. Like, no, that's not how I say my name. In an effort to continue to distance himself. Well, and I Up until also, he can't, though. I also kind of picked this, too. So when you did your, um, your pick for with the Office episodes, and you were talking about that... Um, the episode with the fake movie with Jack Black and Jessica Alba, mm-hmm. and you and your son are like, who was that lady's name? And I'm yelling into uh, the void yeah. like... I remembered about an hour Doris after we Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Frau Bluka. Yes. I wish I had like a, a horse name soundtrack to play right then. And then, you know, Marty Feldman was Igor. That guy's... I the, just look at him and I want to laugh, which is terrible because he's... A, but Not an attractive what? man. But, but you know, he used that to his advantage, though. Yeah. Just the, the physical and the comedy and the deadpan humor throughout the entire movie. And no shortage of dick and sex jokes. Yeah. I mean, come on. The Schwanstucker must have been enormous. Yes. The one that gets me was um, when they're talking about the uh, the brain the abnormal brain well whose brain did she pick oh it was um abby normal abby abby someone abby normal it gets me every time it's just it's so simple yeah like how do you not laugh at that that's an interesting angle for you to take because i would never have categorized it in in the horror genre but it's a classic tale yeah, of you're one of the taking... most historical novels and, you know, characters. Yeah, it's it's a it's a well-known story. There there's been lots of books and there's been plenty of movies on it. And as someone who really appreciates campy horror, I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. And maybe you just have to have like a really jacked up sense of humor to just be able to take something like that and then turn it on its head mm-hmm. and make it the complete the, opposite. Yeah, I mean, that's Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder's work, though. If you're a fan of either one of them. Oh, yeah. That's the, that they made a science out of it. I don't think I was really a Gene Wilder fan, probably up until Willy Wonka. But even then, like his... The way he carries himself in that movie, I became curious and started watching more of his movies. And I think this one came up shortly after that. And it was downhill pretty much from there. I was a fan. Okay. My number two. It's pretty recent. It's hereditary. Good one. 2018. Uh, Tony Collette, Millie Shapiro, Gabriel Byrne, Alex Wolfe. Um, written and directed by Ari Aster, who I did not know until I started looking at this, that he also wrote and directed Midsummer. Yeah. Which is one I had a hard time not including on my list. Yeah. Um, sort of the same, like now that I know that he did it, like I can see the similarities between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this one is much more kind of horror movie oriented where midsummer is just disturbing very much I, 
midsummer, like that could happen anywhere, like in a farm in Indiana. Uh, it's usually where things like this happen right. or in the most <laughs> random places you would never think yeah. shit like that would happen. And Kinda that's what happens. Open. Yeah. Um, the score in this movie is terrific. Uh, written by a guy named Calden Stetson. I think it's sort of its own character. The dioramas that Tony Collette's character, her name is Annie. The the diorama she builds, I think they're their own character. Uh, because it tells some inconspicuous backstory. Um, the DID factor between Annie's mom and you sort of find out that well Annie may or may not suffer from the same condition I think that's its own character very much so um it's it's about and these are Ari Aster's words it's about suffering and learning to suffer with this with the suffering uh, and reliving sins of your predecessors. That is actually a very common theme. Yeah. In uh, in the horror genre. A lot, yeah. Uh, plenty of losses to sort of build the the suspense. Uh, early on, Annie's mother has passed away. Um, as she speaks at her funeral, she references uh, her mother's less than conventional beliefs and, and practices. There's uh, always a mom like that in a horror movie. <laughs> always a mom like that. Um, then she goes to some grief counseling and you find out that her brother had committed suicide previously after he has maybe suffered with uh, some DID. Uh, it's, it's relatively new, so I don't, I don't want to just blow through the plot here, but, uh, Charlie, the, uh, Annie's daughter's character ends up deceased. I won't describe how it's in a rather disturbing manner. Um, that's another loss. Um, I sort of already addressed it, but the, the, the paranormal element of this movie is a lot more pronounced where Midsummer is just uh, kind of mind-bendingly cult-oriented. Uh, this, I'm not sure why, but scenes where characters, and it usually has to do with uh, like the occult more than paranormal uh or scenes where characters like climb walls and ceilings yeah that freaks me the fuck out and i don't why? understand why I, I don't know because it's it, it's visually unnerving like why is this person climbing on the ceiling and not only does she climb but she does it fast like it's it's scampering across walls and ceilings well then it's not something you're used it's not something that you would see like my mind t- doesn't know how to deal with it. I, I I don't understand. I've known someone since you know you're kind of leaning on the occult stuff who said that he was present during an exorcism and witnessed 
something like this, witnessed it with his own eyes. I still wrestle with myself. Like, was he just, you know, was, was that just bullshit or was he telling me the truth? But, um, as someone who does not mess with, with things that you shouldn't, uh, I, I don't, I respect it enough to, I respect it enough to say, you know what, I, even though I haven't seen this, I'm not going to completely deny, you know, its existence because I mean, weird stuff happens all the time with no explanation, like really, really weird stuff. That's a rule in the house. Uh, even though I am not a religious person whatsoever, uh, to the fact that I probably am like agnostic, uh, there are no Ouija boards in this house and like, it's not something no, they aren't allowed in. Not something I don't want. I don't want to gamble. Like, why take the risk? Yeah, spirit contact is not something no. that you should play around with. I I get super upset when I go out to places and see Ouija boards being marketed as a toy for children, like that are seven Dude. years and up. I'm like, no, that is not something idea. you should do. Yeah, and you know that's a scene in the movie is where uh, the lady that she be friends at the grief group who actually you find out has ulterior motives mm -hmm. but she conjures the spirit of her dead grandson uh and then shows annie basically how to do it with her daughter you do don't mess around with that stuff <laughs> no that's a that's a balance of uh give and take and you don't know ultimately you don't know who you're talking to on the other side because you may get someone that is just going to tell you all the things you want to hear. And then you invite a whole bunch of bad yep. into your life. Way more than what you bargained for. Oh, it's always a lot more. The The balance of give and take when it's a, um, a not so friendly entity mm -hmm. is much greater. Um, my friend Landry. Well, I, I even asked you about it. My friend Landry went to uh, Zach Bagan's. Uh, I remember this. <laughs> Landry, I'm going to tell your story. I'm sorry. He went to Zach Bagan's museum, accidentally leaned over into an exhibit where he should not have leaned. Nope, you made a mistake some, there, sir. Something came home. And like if it wasn't Landry and his wife, Cassandra, that were telling me the story, I would have said, uh, okay, maybe you're kind of full of shit. But like I, I, I know how he operates. And I know how much they struggled for a few weeks and to the point where I asked you about coming to do some sage work at their house. Yes, you did. Well, and, and it's so funny. I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, really, that's for anyone out there who is a believer in the supernatural. You know, you'll probably understand for those who don't. Um, again, it's a lot of give and take with your own personal energies and with whatever energy you're dealing with. So when you asked me if I would be, you know, willing to do a cleansing, I mean, I like got up in it. Like, I can't just sage this house and hope that it's going to be okay. Yeah. I went into a lot of ritual work um, and what I had initially settled on. And I consulted with a friend who um follows the path of chaos magic so demons and evil spirits are kind of you know good friends for him i just consulted with him like hey what do you think 
and he said, well, you could try this. So initially, it's uh, it's calling upon the archangels to do the cleansing for you. Um, not just hoping that you'll, you know, you'll catch a random angel. It's like, yeah, you're... <laughs> Hope is not a plan. Uh, yeah, it's like you are really you're really up in it if you're having to call the archangels to to cleanse your house. They finally got it taken care of. Um, but they I really believe that they struggled for several weeks with and witching it hour it problems. Have been, you know, it could have just been a mischievous spirit. They'll play tricks on you. The ones who really mean business will do some really messed up stuff. Well, they will and, make their presence known. Yeah, those things, uh, the they attach to people rather than places. It's not like a ghost. Um, and they'll attach to the innocent. So yep, and they, if they, they have a kid in their house, like super hard to get rid of in the worst kind of way. Yeah, yeah. When you're dealing with that, it's it takes more than. <laughs> It takes more than some sage. You you gotta you gotta put in a lot of energy and a lot of work. Okay, give me your number one. Okay, my number one, um, very well known movie. I'm pretty sure you've seen it. Uh, I picked a Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh wow! Yes, um, came out in 1984, so it was about two years before my time. So it was it was already out there before I came to be. Um, I always go back to this one. I can watch it anytime. I'm never not up for watching it. Do you feel like you picked this one because it, um, it's genuinely your favorite or because there's some, um, like how well it's received in the genre? Does that make sense? I know it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's uh, uh, my motive for picking it is uh, not just by how well received it is. Of course, you know, directed by Russ, uh, Wes Craven, mm-hmm. very well known director, made a lot of good movies in his time. Um, I like it. Um, I think it's a pioneering movie. I would of, agree yeah. of the slasher genre. You and they made it. They had a lot of they had a lot of cast members that weren't you know too really well known. This was Johnny Depp's first movie, yeah, his very first movie, and they were considering giving his part of Glenn to Charlie Sheen, but he asked for too much money, so they gave it to Johnny Depp. When in doubt, go cheaper. Yep, and Robert England was almost not cast as Freddy. They would consider David Warner for that part. Who's David Warner? Tell me who that is. He did, um, he was in uh, Star Trek. And played which character? Uh, you know what? I actually didn't write that part down. You keep talking, I'll Google. Um, and I don't think that it would have been, uh, the, the series um, as a whole, I don't think would have been as great as it was if they had cast someone else to be Freddy. Robert England just does an amazing job with it. How many of the series did Wes Craven direct? Was this the only one? Just in general? Uh, of the Nightmare series. He did all of them, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. I think he did all of them. Okay, David Warner has given me some cricket player, so I'll have to Yeah, he kind of makes sense why he would be in Star Trek. <laughs> 
Um, but for the budget they had, they only had like a $1.8 million budget, which they made back the first three days of the movie was released. I think it was $630 million total just across the board for the entire series worldwide. And that's a huge chunk of money. Yeah. But the their filming techniques, they completely improvised and somehow made it work. I think the two scenes that really do it for me, and I, I did some research um, on my own, but uh, I was in Universal Studios a couple years ago on vacation. Uh, they have, it's called um, like horror movie makeup something. It, they basically just do like a show and they kind of talk to you about how makeup is done for horror movies, but they kind of talk about the genre a little bit too. And they had talked about uh, this movie, like with the finger knives and how they did the blood effects and everything. So what I thought was interesting, um, that first scene, uh, Tina, you know, where she's in bed with her boyfriend, Rob, and um, they're about to go to sleep and she kind of falls into sleep. And of course, you know, Freddy comes out and that that moment where it comes back to reality, but she's still in the dream. And you see those knife marks across her chest and then blood just starts gushing out. Mm-hmm. And then she's like hoisted in the air and crawling and writhing all over the ceiling, like just in agony and her boyfriend can't do anything. And then just falls just dead. Yeah. So how they did that was uh, they had, uh, they had this set and they rotated it. So what you're seeing is her actually moving with the set? So it's rotating on like a 360 degree axis. And they have, um, they had crew like physically along. turning yeah. that set piece. That's cool. And I didn't know that. I mean, because really, just by looking at it, like it's very, the scene is very well done, especially for the first kill scene. And I'd always wondered, like, how, how did they do that, especially back then? Is. No, I've seen the first uh, probably three, but it's been uh, forever. Is the first movie have the scene where somebody gets sucked into the bed? Oh yes, okay. my favorite. Is that the first scene. one? It's the first one that said Johnny Depp's kill scene. Okay, yeah, that I remember that specifically bothering me. Why did it bother you? Okay, because I'm going to tell you why I loved it so much okay, when you're when done. You're a kid. Uh, and you're kind of scared of the dark and you're afraid <laughs> something's going to get you. The safe place is under the covers in your bed. If your arm <laughs> or your leg is sticking out of the side, he can get you. Kukui can come and get you. If you're under the covers, everything's cool. But he was... Face. Un- yeah. <laughs> he was right in the safety of his... The center of his bed and just gets sucked down. Like, there's no defense for that. At that point, you're just... Even though he tries and doesn't make it out. Nope. Uh, it's my favorite. I think that's my favorite kill scene out of the entire movie. The whole movie itself is just, it's very, it's... There's a very unnerving sense of just being very uncomfortable. And, of course, you know, you're dealing with a child killer here that's not necessarily a very pleasant thing to think about. Um and they're being killed in their sleep, which makes it even worse. Yeah. But uh, Johnny Depp's kill scene specifically, 
I mean, I think it's just, it's fabulous. You know, here he is, fell asleep when his girlfriend told him not to, and she's calling for him across the street, calling him on the phone, and can't get to him and yeah just get sucked into his bed but the amount of blood that comes out of that bed <laughs> is amazing yeah it's uh it's great niagara falls really amount of blood so they use the same rotating set for that scene um they just turned it upside down they turned it upside down turn um they so the nailed liquid would just pour out then yeah they just poured it in and shot it in reverse so it would look like it was so, you know, like when you just pour liquid, like it just kind of just kind of yeah. falls down rather than like a burst up. So they shot that part. The pouring of the blood is shot in reverse to make it look like it came out of the bed. But I mean, same thing. They just nailed everything to the uh, to the room, turned it upside down. I actually read the guy that was pouring the bucket of um, blood and the water and there got electrocuted because. Oh, it wow. fell. Yeah, some of that water fell on a light during filming, and they did that on the first try. That scene <laughs> you're watching was on the first take. Wow. They had another opportunity to do it, but they were so pleased with the first take that they didn't they didn't need to do anything. Yeah, with it. let's like try to minimize the number of electrocutions we have to. Yes, that too. I'm pretty sure safety must have been a concern. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen those movies. I didn't watch them. I would have been, if it was 84, I would have been nine. I probably didn't watch them until I was, uh, I don't know, 12, maybe. I'm not a big fan of all the movies in that series across the board, um, but the first one. The first one's my favorite. Yeah, the first one sets the tone. Um, It really does. I just, I think like as far as casting with the exception of um, Heather Langenkamp and... Robert England. I mean, yeah, maybe some questionable casting choices. Well, but, but it just, it didn't say, Freddie just became funny. Yeah. Which I know, like, that was kind of the thing, you know, once they started making more movies. Like, yeah, Freddie's supposed to be funny, but I think that he was genuinely scary in the first movie. Oh, yeah. No, nobody looked like that. Like, that was a movie makeup feat. Like there wasn't a, a movie bad guy, uh, horror character that looked like that. Um, prior to that, you know, Michael Myers were the goofy. Isn't the mask somebody famous? Yeah, um, it was just a William Shatner mask. Yeah, there we go. And they just painted um, over it. Yeah, so there's. Freddie's skin was unlike anything you'd ever seen in a movie before very much so i don't remember anything before that well and everything that they used um i use a lot of movies now you know with the technology that we have it's really easy to rely on that technology um and it kind of takes away from the scare factor yeah and i think that's why i like this movie because it's genuine like just from the materials that they use like dear it's close to the end of the movie um, Nancy's character is running up the stairs and like her feet sink through. I mean, they just used, I mean, just objects you could go buy at the hardware store and just made it look real enough just to sell the story. Yeah. It's very, I think I'm a big fan of practical things. I'm glad you said that. When it comes to horror, just because um, when you do too much and you complicate it, it's, it's not scary anymore. 
Okay, that's going to be a perfect segue for my number one. Oh, what is it? <laughs> this is the other one that either everybody's going to go, oh, yes, that was disturbing, or no, this was stupid. It's paranormal activity. Oh. This movie, I, I was like an adult. It. I mean, it was 2007. That shit's scary. Right? Like, Did that stuff I don't get happens. scared of stuff. Hauntings this happen movie for real. <laughs> bothered me for a couple of days. Like, which one? The very first yeah, one? Yeah, the or? first one. Okay. The other ones, forget about that. The, the first one, because nothing looked like it. Everything they shot was not special effects, CGI, anything. They they found a way to make it right on the video. Mm-hmm. Uh, written and directed by Oren Pelly. They actually shot it in his house. This was his house. Oh, I actually didn't know that. Uh, Katie Featherston and Micah Sloat are the only two real characters. They're dealing with, they figure out a demon possession. Again, you don't ever lay eyes on on the bad guy. That's sort of a theme with my list. What you, know, what you can't see is sometimes the scariest. Um, after watching this, like... You hear every noise in your house. It, it, I've never heard that noise before. Maybe yeah. I should get up and go look. Maybe I shouldn't like get up and go look. Your brain compensates for the fear by <laughs> overanalyzing everything yes. the second you're done with that movie. I was a grown man. Like, uh, you know, I wander around in the woods in the dark, you know, trying to hunt feral animals. <laughs> Stuff in not, the woods not as, doesn't not as scary. scare me as this. Yeah. <laughs> because you know what's out there. Well, that's true. Yeah. And sometimes you can see it. Paranormal movies, like you don't, you don't always see. You're right. I, that's what sold it was not being able to, you know, that the presence is there. Uh, yeah. And very someone, much so. And someone and not who has subtly. experienced um, paranormal presence in their personal space. It, it does. It, it can be very disturbing. It's unnerving. It is. This is another one that was super cheap to make. They made it for $15,000. Oh, wow. And then it turned around and grossed $193 million. Um, But I don't think you get this movie without The Blair Witch. Because it, it's another lost footage, you know, yeah. first person perspective. I think The Blair Witch was a wise choice just because it started the uh, the found footage subgenre of horror anything paranormal activity kind of takes it one step further there wasn't a script for this one either uh he just gave them outlines and guidelines about how the scene should go and what you need to the the topics of discussion so unscripted they shot three different uh endings um one of them is a one of the alternate endings. Um, I don't. I ha- I haven't ever seen. If you're familiar with the movie, we're going to talk about it. Like everybody's seen it since it's uh, 13 years old now. Um, last scene of the movie. The video camera is going in the bedroom. She stands up and stands over Micah for two or three hours. Um, walks downstairs. A horrible noise. Micah gets up and runs downstairs. It's it's implied that she kills him. You don't ever see it uh, again. 
the stuff you don't see is the scariest. Mm-hmm. She comes back upstairs and uh, the cops are already like on the way. They come upstairs to find her and she's unaware of anything that has happened downstairs. Uh, she has a knife in her hand. She turns around and the cops shoot her. Um, they didn't like that one. I don't like that idea anyway. Um, I think the one they stuck with is the best. If you've seen the alternate ending, she comes back upstairs and cuts her own throat. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I'll, I, as with most, th- most things, I like the original. I usually don't like deviations. I think the way they stuck with it where she just sort well, of I mean, turns it, into the an ending can make or break a movie because sure. that's what's going to leave your audience like thinking on the way home, like what they essentially think of that movie. And you don't want, you don't as a, you know, as a producer and a director, you wouldn't want your audience to feel cheated yeah, and lose out on potential for possibly making more money or making more movies. Again, this movie is a, a big giant advertisement for not messing around with Ouija boards. Because uh, they do try that. It doesn't work. Don't do this at home, kids. No. Nope. Just leave them in the box. Um, my, I'm not sure if my kids have seen this or not. If they have, I'm not aware of it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they've seen like maybe one of the other ones. Yeah. Because I think there are, what, six? I'm not sure if they... I want to say... I'm sure they've seen Get Out because I... Went through a deal where I watched that a couple times. I say I want to say there were six movies in this and the Paranormal Activity. And I don't remember franchise. anything about the other ones, which I guess speaks to. Uh, it's so hard to live up to well, the expectation. Two and three piggyback off of the first one. See, I knew that, but I don't remember anything about it because it's this. It's still Katie's character, right? The second one I know, but I don't remember anything about the story. I More family gets involved. Um, I start including children. You know, things like this are happening to kids. It always ups the creep factor Yeah. a bit, I think, because you know, kids are supposed to be innocent. And Speaking of that, I watched Sinister a few days ago. Also a good one. Uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about including that one. Um, which, that's, you know kids getting over overtaken by whatever entity and they ultimately it seems to be or the end of their family very rife i've noticed in a lot of movies that come out probably in the last maybe five or seven years do you think i think people have figured out you know kids can sell a horror movie for sure you think it's because that's like the ultimate breach of innocence no I don't think so. What do you think? I don't think so because you said that like you you have a definitive opinion. Well, because I look at it this way, and a lot of those uh, a lot of those movies where kids are being used, where there's a paranormal or an occult aspect. I mean, if you're someone who is interested in the subject um, matter at all, um, I mean, children are very much present. Uh, I think it just stops. I think it ups the the scare factor. Um, is yeah, generally speaking, you would not want to do harm to a child, and yeah, um, you know, no one wants to see that. But I mean, kids are easily accessible. I think when it comes to paranormal and supernatural stuff, they're 
They can be very sensitive to it. They're the easiest to latch on to. Kids are no safer than adults are when it comes to that stuff. They're just less aware of it. Yeah. Or they may be very well aware of it. It, it depends. That's all I got. Anything you want to add? Tell me, uh, give me two of your honorable mentions. Two honorable mentions. Okay. I'm almost kind of scared to name one of them. And I initially, I put it on the list and I had to sit and think about it. I'm like, I don't think, I, I don't think it'll be very well received if I say what this one is. <laughs> Just because... Um, Our dozens the plot, of just listeners because the the plot of the movie care. like it's it's really jacked up. What is it? Um, I'm a big fan of foreign horror, so I've watched a lot of uh, Chinese horror films, Japanese horror films. Japanese are, people are yeah, their crazy. concept of horror is is it's out there. Yeah, um, like if, some truly disturbing stuff. Italian horror, like if you've ever seen any movies by Dario Argento, mm -hmm. um, or Mexican um, horror film directors, Guillermo del Toro is probably one of my faves. Um, Lucio Fulci, who's uh, an Italian director, did um, some early pioneer work on uh, the zombie genre. Um, but this movie came out in 2004, I think. Uh, the director's name is Fruit Chan. It's called Dumplings. So it originally started off as a part of a um, part of a short story, like kind of three movie type of deal in one. It was called Three Extremes, uh, and each short story was was different. This one in particular. was very very difficult for me to watch i mean to the point where i question my own like what is wrong with me why did i just watch this film <laughs> i got curious like your motivation to watch yes. it to start with yeah because I'll, i think within the first hour you're seeing some really really disturbing stuff and you probably should stop there and shouldn't watch the rest of the movie um so it kind of plays on the trope where you've got um, a married couple that have been married for a long time husband's not interested in the wife anymore and the wife is trying to regain her youth so the wife hears of a um kind of like a, a local legend and um she has these uh these dumplings that you can consume that will restore your youth now i will leave it to the listeners to just go do this research on their own. Because again, I, I don't feel comfortable saying it out loud. <laughs> uh, the ingredient in which the dumplings are made is why it's such a jacked up movie. Gotcha. Um, it, it is very, very difficult to watch. but And I've watched it several times. And I think each time that I've watched it, I've kind of gotten past the why am I watching this part? Um, but why did this director choose this subject matter with... This particular ritual, I'm, and I'm just going to say ritual in the which uh, the way that the, these dumplings are made. Um, like why? And the more I've thought about it, and the more research I've done, I'm like, okay, it's not that out there. If you really dive into it, um, again, it's perspective on belief, right? Yes. Yeah. And what's so funny is, 
I mean, essentially, like there's there's some cannibalism in it, which anyone who's been exposed to Hannibal Lecter, like that's not a big deal, but it's a specified type of cannibalism is is why it hits a nerve. Gotcha. Um. So yeah, I I kind I had to wrestle with myself. I'm like, you know, like I I don't know if I'm gonna if this is gonna be something good to speak about out loud and really have to dive into why I picked it, other than the fact that it just it really disturbs the shit well, out of me. Well, maybe you've done us all a favor then. It could, or maybe I piqued someone's curiosity. Well, I mean, but I'm gonna have to go see what it's about now. You probably but I'm will. A weirdo. I'm just gonna say, like, just just be warned again. Like, I if if anyone makes it past maybe like the first maybe half hour to 45 minutes. Okay. <laughs> then you can come join the club. <laughs> yeah. You may have to watch it like five or six mm-hmm. more times to just be kind of not okay with the idea, but enough to watch it and then try to try to form a, a fully realized opinion about the entire film itself. <laughs> yeah. Give me one more. One more. If you got one, if you don't have one. Oh man, I've got plenty. Um, what about you? What was one of your honorable mentions? Uh, the Exorcist. Oh, good one. It's, it's, again, disturbing. Some things you can't see. Uh, and I mean, and exorcisms are real. Yeah. It's like Catholics don't play around with that. It. Uh, I don't know why, like, considering that I, I'm not a believer per se, like why I'm so interested in religious oriented demonic exorcism types topics maybe it's because like in the back of my brain like if if because you can't believe one without the other right so if one can't exist without the other yeah so i mean they all came from the same place um i think the evil tends to point itself out it's a little bit more prominent so maybe i'm like in my lizard brain trying to identify with belief somewhere i i, I don't know but i do like uh, i watch all kinds of religious oriented stuff and i think it may be because i'm fascinated by the ability to to blindly believe uh i i can't explain i, I don't know i think there's a documentary on netflix right now um about the priest the their real life priest that they base the movie off of and it talks about his experience with the exorcism that they based that they pulled part of the movie now, off of. it's my understanding that the the catholic church as an entity does not acknowledge exorcisms is that correct i think so um but i think part of it is also from this movie um of course there's been several movies about exorcism since then um in my experience, no Catholic that I have met denies it existence. Um, my mother was raised Catholic. She will not watch this movie. Really? She watched it once. She's like, I'll never watch it again. I mean, and I, I mean, and I asked her just out of curiosity. I'm like, why? She's like, because that shit happens. People walked out of the movie theater for various reasons. Um, And actually, my other honorable mention kind of plays into the same into the same trope uh the exorcism of emily rose i just watched that one a couple of days ago yeah so i really like that one bit it 
you know, when they're going through, um, through the trial and everything, just the, the evidence, there has to be like some pretty solid evidence for the church to acknowledge that an exorcism is even necessary. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, we need this. Like, no, like you have to have very hard evidence to suggest it, um, that it needs to be done. Um, that movie was based off of an exorcism, um, a real-life exorcism of a girl in Germany. Oh, okay. I thought it was, like, middle of America, like Nebraska or somewhere. Well, no, like, the movie is, but the the girl that they based it off of, the inspiration from the movie came from from someone real. Um, I don't remember how old she was when it happened. Um, There's tapes and there's audio of her exorcism. Like, you can find it all over the internet. Um, I mean, it's basically the same thing. She went through this horrible ordeal and died in the process. And, um, yeah, it's, it's funny that there's, in this particular type of movie that there's always, the person who's having to do the legwork is questioning whether or not they really believe. Like, they, they can't not have that in there. Yeah. You always have someone who, again, blind is they just go by blind faith and then someone who's like, I'm, I'm not so sure, or maybe I do. And, and I'm not so sure. It's just creepy too. It's super creepy. Um, I would give another one, but it's not really a horror movie. It's a horror movie in the idea that it is real and it did. And I think is continuing to happen. Oh, I'm curious. Uh, Spotlight. It's about Spotlight is the uh, investigative magazine portion of the Boston Globe, huh. and their investigation into the Catholic Church's cover up of the molestation of countless children. So, yeah, we 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 want to talk about religion. We could uh, yeah, spend I, 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 several hesitated several even hours. bringing that up. Um, I don't want to get super deep into it. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't and you want to learn something about some disturbing stuff, go watch it and then take a shower because that's how I felt. Uh, I don't I don't even want to bring it up now. <laughs> I, I mean, regret and, saying and it I, out loud. And I already know enough just to, to know where that conversation could go. And yeah, it's... You feel pretty gross. Yeah, not awesome. Let's wrap it up. I appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me. I think this turned into a good one. Uh, happy uh, Halloween week, I guess. Uh, this will come out uh, Friday morning be- before Halloween. So if you're looking for something to do this weekend, maybe we've given you some some viewing options. Uh, some kid-friendly, some not kid-friendly. That's for you to decide. Um, I don't think any of them are kid-friendly. <laughs> That line is so blurred now from when, particularly when I was younger, though. God, I didn't get to watch these movies till I was a teenager. I mean, like the, the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. Okay. The Exorcist not, I didn't watch till I was an adult. They're not young kid friendly. I wouldn't even suggest. People like, take their six-year-olds to might be, Young Frankenstein might be okay. It's pretty harmless, they're not, yeah. they're not going to get the, uh, the innuendo. No. They might not even like it. I don't think it's a kid. I don't know if I would think it would be really funny. No, it's not funny to your older. Okay, we got to go. Uh, 
thanks to Crystal again for joining me. This is something we've talked about early on. Um, as always, you can email me, pick4podcast at gmail.com. That's the number four. Twitter feed, Instagram feed, both at pick4podcast. Uh, message me directly if you know me. Again, I'd love to hear from our uh, international listeners that we've picked up, uh, Canada listeners, uh, UK listener, Russia listener. That's a new one. Uh, email me. Let me know how you, how you came across us. Um, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us.